Amen. Let's stand together to read the Word of God. I want to talk to you today about the rumble in the wilderness. We've called it before the showdown in the desert. When Jesus met Satan in hand-to-hand combat. And I'm sharing on this because I know the church of God is under attack. And we need to learn how to defeat the enemy of our soul. We talk about this a lot, but it really never ends, does it? The only time warfare will end is when he comes to take us home. Until then, we're in a battle, but we're victorious in that battle if we know what Jesus knew. Now, let's read Matthew 4, 1 through 4, and this is the account of the rumble in the wilderness, Jesus versus Satan. It says, then Jesus was led up by who? Led up by the Spirit. The Spirit of God led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was, guess what? Hungry. And the tempter came. And the tempter said to him, if you are the Son of God, the devil's favorite word is if, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Can we read this together? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What a great word. We do not live by satisfying our own, only our basic instincts, but we live and move and have our being in Him. And we live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And that's this book right here. If you have your sword with you, can you hold it up in the air? If you have your Bible with you, how crucial it is that every believer become very familiar with this book because this is the pathway to victory. It's the pathway to defeating the devil. It is the only thing he's afraid of. So let's pray together. Father, as Jesus wielded the word and by the word defeated the devil, help us to do the same. And we thank you, Lord, for deliverance and victory in the hour of temptation today. And I do pray for everyone in that valley of temptation, in that hour of weakness, in that midnight of their soul, where the enemy has come to tempt them and to lure them away into something that would destroy. I pray that today you will encourage us and illuminate us and stand us on our feet, victorious over the enemy of our soul. For you are our captain and our model and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Can you breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to my heart today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. You can be seated. Let me begin this series. I'm going to be three weeks on this. We're going to look at each temptation one at a time. At this battle in the wilderness that Jesus had with the devil. And in this epic battle, Satan attacked Jesus with three temptations. The first temptation, Satan attacked God's provision for Jesus' life, his provision in his life. He attacked God as provider. In the second temptation, he attacked God's protection over his life. And we're going to see that next week. In the third temptation, he attacked God's program or his will for his life. Now, if you stop and think about it, these three temptations are universal in scope. Think of any temptation that comes your way, and it's going to have to do with one of those three arenas in life. Either God's provision in your life, which has to do with hungers and needs, or God's protection over your life, 
or God's will for your life. Now when he attacked Jesus, he was attempting to overthrow him, to derail him, to sidetrack him from God's purpose for him, which was to redeem you and I. If Satan had succeeded in this attack in the wilderness, we wouldn't be here today. America wouldn't be here today. We'd be in a whole different world because Jesus' purpose would have been thwarted by the enemy. I'm telling you, the fate of all mankind hung in the balance in this showdown in the desert, this rumble in the wilderness. When Satan attacked the Lord Jesus, the whole future of the human race was at stake. And so I want to just go back a little bit before Jesus wound up in the wilderness, just prior to his journey into the wilderness, he experienced the anointing of the Holy Spirit of God. He went to the River Jordan, as the Bible tells us, and John the Baptist was baptizing one after another, and all of a sudden he sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. And to his amazement, the Lamb of God, Jesus, walked to the water's edge, walked in and said, Baptize me. John said, Who am I to baptize you? And Jesus said, Suffer it to be so that this righteousness is fulfilled. So I'm sure with a trembling hand, John dipped the Son of God down into the water and brought him back up. And the Bible says that when he came back up, those that were there saw something and they heard something. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus Christ, descended upon his head like a dove. He came out of heaven, descended like a dove, and the Holy Ghost makes a point in recording the Word of God. The Holy Spirit not only descended on Him, but remained on Him. Once the Holy Spirit alit on Jesus, He never left. Now, let's get our Christology straight today. Jesus, from the moment He was conceived, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus never needed to repent and come to, the, come to God and say, All right, now my sins are clear. Uh, fill me with your spirit. No, when Jesus was born, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. In the womb, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Because he did not inherit Adam's nature like you and I did. So he had no, no downward pull. And he did not have that propensity towards sin. Or he was, did not have that sin by impunity that we did. Because David said, I was born in sin. He said, I was shaped in iniquity. He said, well, as soon as I came into the world and the doctor spanked me for the first time, I was a sinner. Born in sin, shaped in iniquity. That wasn't Jesus. Jesus was filled with the Spirit of God from his birth to his baptism. He spent 30 long years in what we call the silent years, the years in the shadow where he worked at Joseph's wood shop and was just a regular looking guy out there and no one really fully grasped who he was except no doubt his mother Mary and stepfather Joseph. That's why I call him stepfather because he was not his real father. God was. But he was filled with the Holy Spirit from his birth to the, this baptism at the river. He spent 30 years, Jesus did, being good, being kind, loving, happy, peaceful, patient, and submissive. Can you imagine, moms, having a kid, you never had to say, stop that. Or that was wrong. It never happened with Jesus. It, it, it's, it's, it's hard to put your mind around, but this is what the Bible says about him. He was perfect. There was no sin in his life. Jesus was a perfect man. 
Jesus was the kind of human being that God intended all of us to be when he created Adam and Eve in the garden. He was the perfect man. He was perfectly natural, but a perfectly good little boy. He was perfectly normal, but absolutely holy as a son, as a brother, as a neighbor, as a friend, as a student, as a carpenter. I would love to have something Jesus made. You ever think about it? He made benches, he made cabinets, he made tables. And you know that the work was perfect, it had to be perfect. It was flawless. I would wager his work was in demand. Because God was fashioning these things. Isn't that something? But now at the River Jordan, something else happened with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that he was anointed by the Holy Spirit for his ministry. The Spirit of God came upon him for his ministry. And the same Holy Spirit, think about it, that brooded over the face of the waters at the very dawn of creation. We're told that when God got ready to speak light into existence, that the Holy Spirit was brooding over the face of the deep. That same Holy Spirit descended on Jesus. And ever since the fall of man, he had been hovering over the sons of men, that is the Holy Spirit, looking for somebody on whom he could rest. But there was never another perfect man until Jesus came. Commentator John Phillips points out that when Noah sent forth a dove to find land following the great flood, he sent this dove out the window as the waters began to recede. And we're told in the Bible that the dove flew to and fro across the face of the deep, the face of those receding waters, and he could find no land on which to light, and he returned to the ark. And likewise, over the centuries, the Holy Spirit found no home in the restless seas of mankind until he alighted on God's true ark, God's Son. And when he alighted on the ark of the new covenant, Jesus Christ, it says he remained. Why? Because there was nothing there to grieve him. Nothing there to drive him away. Nothing there to vex him. Because Jesus was a perfect man. He was the perfect man. He's the man everybody wants to know. He's the man everybody really wishes they were like. The perfect model, the perfect image of God. Now immediately following... This powerful anointing of the Spirit of God upon the life of Jesus, we are told that the Spirit immediately led him into the wilderness. Right after God had said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Everybody heard it. And when God said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, God was putting his seal of approval on the hidden years, the silent years, the first 30 years where Jesus had done nothing wrong, had lived a sinless life, and God was saying at the end of those 30 years, right prior to his ministry, this is my beloved son, and I am well pleased with him. He hasn't failed me once. But now he's going into the wilderness. And we know as he went into the wilderness, he faced temptation, but not temptation he had not faced before. That is, he knew what temptation was like. The Bible says he was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. Now I want you to think about that. Every one of us were tempted somehow this week. Do you know that Jesus felt in his life on earth every one 
of the types of temptations you experienced, yet he never sinned. And because of that, he can sympathize and he can empathize with us. He can say, I understand, I've got it, I know the struggle, and I'm going to strengthen you and help you and stand you up, and I can breathe life into you, and I can carry you through this because I know what it's like to fight temptation. You are not alone in your temptation. We have a sympathizer, we have an empathizer, we have one who gets it, one who understands what we go through. And he's able to come in and say, come on, take our hand and walk us through it. But the level of attack that Jesus was about to encounter was new and it was toxic. Why? Because he was about to meet face to face Satan. Satan himself, the devil, split hoof, the tempter, the liar, the murderer, the deceiver, the fallen angel, the fallen archangel, was going to approach him personally in the wilderness. When I read about this wilderness place, there was hardly a more desolate place to which he could have been led than the terrain along the western shore of the Dead Sea. It's called the Dead Sea because it's dead, see? It's dead. It's desolate. It's depressing. It's, there's nothing there. And so here he goes to this desolate place. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus was surrounded by wild beasts. There were wild beasts howling in the night, wild beasts surrounding him by day. He had not eaten in 40 days. He was weak. He was tired. He was about to experience major hunger pangs. And yet here's the wild beasts of the wilderness all around him. He had no weapon, no knife, no spear, no sword, no nothing. Both Mark and Luke imply that his entire wilderness experience was one of temptation. The whole 40 days. He was also led into an excessively long 40-day fast. Water only, if that. There was no food. This was not a Daniel fast. He didn't have Smoothie King. He didn't have vitamins. He didn't have any of that. He was out there with water only at the most, and that's it. 40 days. He lost weight. He grew tired. Matthew 4.2 says that at the end of the 40-day fast, Jesus was very hungry. And at that point, Satan attacked and his attack was short and sharp. During a prolonged fast, the feeling of hunger goes away after three or four days. We just finished a seven-day fast here in our church. And i got to tell you, after three or four days, I really did lose hunger. I wasn't feeling hungry. I wasn't feeling particularly hungry when I broke my fast. Because your stomach shrinks. Our stomachs are spoiled. They've always, always been full of food. But when you... When you take the food away, after a period of days, you cease feeling hungry. And I experienced that. But after the fast is over with, that hunger returns with a vengeance towards the end. And this sudden onslaught of recurring hunger is when Satan chose to attack with the first temptation. Mark this down, church. Our enemy does not play fair. He doesn't care about fair. He attacks when you're weak. He attacks when you're hungry. He attacks when you're down. And once he attacks, if he gets you down and gets you about ready to give up, he'll kick you longer until you do give up. He doesn't play fair. He'll use any means at any time in any way to get at you. He will use an opportune moment, and most of the moments he uses are not fair. 
It wasn't fair with Jesus. Satan fired off a suggestion into his mind. The Bible talks about the fiery arrows of the devil. What is a fiery arrow? It's a thought. He fires a thought into your mind. You and I win or lose our spiritual battle between our ears. That's why the Bible says you've got you to pull down every stronghold in your mind and bring every thought into the captivity of Christ and into the captivity of the Word of God. That's why the Bible says whatever things are true, whatever is honest, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, if there's any virtue to it or any praise, that's what you're to think on. Think on. You can't be made to think about something you don't allow. So the Bible talks a lot about the thoughts, and this thought was fired into the mind of the Son of God. And it began with this, if... If you are the Son of God, if, and the devil immediately attacked the word God had just gave Jesus at the Jordan. At the Jordan, he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Forty days later, in a fast, the devil attacks him. If you are, if that's true, if you really mean that, if you think that's genuine, and he challenged God's word over Jesus' life, and he'll challenge God's word over your life, and he'll challenge God's word over my life. God will tell you I'm going to use you for this or that. And the devil will come and challenge it. God will show you what he wants to do in you. And the devil will challenge it. You will come to Christ and get saved. And the devil will challenge it. The Holy Spirit will tell your spirit that you're now a child of God. And down the road the devil will challenge it. He challenged the word that Jesus had received. He challenged his public ministry. And if I want you to stop and think about this. Jesus' public ministry began and it ended with the same identical satanic words, if you be the Son of God. In the wilderness, right before he started, if you're the Son of God. Hanging on the cross three, three years later, the crowd shouts at him, if you are the Son of God, bring yourself down. If you are the Son of God at the beginning, if you are the Son of God at the end. Here's what Satan seemed to be saying to him. And boy, I see the devil working this way with you and I. He seemed to be saying, well, you poor, starved, emaciated, poor man. Famished and dying in this wilderness. Are you really the son of God? In other words, if you're really the son of God, where is your provider? Where's your protector? Where's your heavenly father? It doesn't look to me like he's taking care of you. And what was he doing? He was attacking the provision, the care, the goodness, the watch care of God over Jesus' life. And he does this with you and me in the same way when we're down. Or he'll flip the focus. He'll flip the coin from us to God and he'll attack the integrity of God. His faithfulness, His goodness, His provision, His concern, or even if He's really there. He does this when it's an hour of need. Now, if you look very, very carefully, you'll see that right behind the attack against God's provision and God, God's goodness came another arrow. Foomp, foomp, first one, if you're the Son of God, then foomp, here comes the next one. And you know what the devil told him? He said, I've got a solution. Can I tell you all the truth about the enemy of your soul today? He's got a solution for your hungers. Well, you got real quiet on that one. See, Jesus was hungry. 
And the devil offered a solution. The devil had a solution. Now, it was not a right solution, but he had a solution. And I want you to notice the devil talked to Jesus. He talked to him in his mind. And sometimes we're thinking certain thoughts, and we're not aware at all that some of those thoughts we're thinking were put there and planted there by the enemy. And so all of a sudden, here's Jesus. He's thinking these thoughts. And he says, I've got a solution for you, Jesus. Here's what you can do to take care of your hunger command that these stones be made bread just you say it son of god and it will be done so the first temptation of jesus there in the wilderness in the showdown in the desert represents our temptations to commit sins that have to do with appetite the kinds of sins we associate with lust or the physical arena of life he had a legitimate hunger There was not a thing in the world wrong with Jesus being hungry. God made him that way. There's not a thing in the world wrong with relationship hunger, sexual hunger, food hunger, acceptance hunger. We as human beings have all kinds of hungers, all kinds of desires. And there was nothing wrong with Jesus' hunger. But the devil was trying to move on his hunger and get him to make a decision where essentially he would have done this. He would have taken care of a right need the wrong way. And here's the spooky thing about this temptation. Jesus could have done exactly what Satan was tempting him to do. He could have turned those stones into bread. God in flesh could have turned to those stones and said, give me a great big nice loaf of wonder bread. And it would have been the original wonder bread. And you know what he would have had? He would have had bread. Say, how do you know that, Pastor Jeff? Because in his ministry, he turned water into wine. If you can turn water into wine, you can turn a stone into bread. He multiplied a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish into enough food to feed thousands of people. He was the miracle worker. He had the power of God. You know why? Because he was God wrapped in flesh. He could have done it. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was, was with God, and the, word, and, and the Word was God, and all that was created was created through Him. Everything we see, hear, taste, touch, and smell was created through and by Jesus Christ. So He couldn't look at a stone and tell it to be bread? Of course He could. He could have taken matters into His own hands and done exactly what Satan suggested. But Jesus immediately discerned the implication behind the temptation. Satan was suggesting that God was being unkind. So one, he wanted him to doubt God, just like he tried it with Eve. He doesn't do anything new. Eve, has God really said, and God really is hiding from you, Eve, what you want. He doesn't want you to have certain things. And the devil attacked the integrity and the character and the person of God to Eve till she doubted God and reached out and took that fruit and sinned. He does the same with us. He did the same with Jesus. Start out, Jesus, doubting God. But the evil temptation went deeper than that. It wasn't designed just to make Jesus doubt God, but to turn stones into bread Jesus would have had to act independently of the Holy Spirit who had led him into the wilderness. 
He would have had to have acted independently of God who had basically allowed him to be hungry for a season. You know what Jesus was in? He was in what I want to call the hunger test. It was the hunger test. God was testing Jesus where people all through the Bible have been tested and have failed. He had to get him to decide, I'm going to move out of the will of God and I'm going to take matters into my own hands. I'm so tired of waiting. I've been hungry for 40 days. This waiting thing is for the birds. Where is God, said the devil? It doesn't seem like he's anywhere around. All you're surrounded by is wild beasts. This is a drag. Why don't you take matters into your own hands? But Jesus' middle name was obedience. We hear him saying later in the Gospels, I came down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. I can't step out from under God's will and independently turn these stones into bread. In another place, he said, I always, 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 every time, in every circumstance, do those things that please him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. That's what I'm all about. So the lethal poison behind Satan's first temptation, there in the showdown in the desert, the rumble in the wilderness, was that Jesus would use the resources of his sonship, his power, to violate the responsibility of his sonship, which was obedience. Satan was tempting him to meet a right need the wrong way. Folks, this is where life, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where our life is. Because you see, you can have a legitimate hunger and meet it in an illegitimate way. And, and it's the hunger test. Power without obedience brings judgment. Power without obedience brings sin. Jesus had the power, but he did not have the permission of God to turn the stones into bread. He was waiting for God's provision. And so while he waited for God's provision... The enemy tempted him to take matters into his own hands. Does anybody hear what I'm saying today? Is this not where we live? Where the enemy tries to get you to meet your own needs outside of God's timing, outside of God's way, outside of God's will, outside of God's provision. The responsibility of Jesus' sonship was to never act independently of the Father's will. Now listen carefully to this principle. You can mark it down, write it down, put it on your refrigerator. It's always going to be true. Taking matters into your own hands, independent of God's will, is always a recipe for disaster. I got to think of Esau, who in a moment of intense hunger, he came out from hunting one day. He'd been hunting all day. Here comes Esau, Jacob's brother. He comes out from the woods and he's tired and he is hungry. And Jacob is waiting there. Remember that commercial? How long has it been since you had a great big hot steaming bowl of wolf brand chili? Well, that's too long. Remember that? I can't believe I said that. But it came to me this morning. Jacob was standing there basically saying that. How long has it been since you had a big hot steaming bowl of Middle Eastern porridge? And he blew it his way. Esau is hungry. Now, here's the deal with Esau. He was the firstborn and he had the inheritance of the firstborn. And Jacob wanted it. He had a highly spiritual, valuable possession. 
Jacob was after. And he attacked him when he was hungry. And Esau looked at that porridge and he thought about his birthright and he said, man, I'm so hungry and I don't see God anywhere and I just don't think there's going to be any food. And he sold it. Sold away his birthright for a bowl of porridge, one of the worst business deals in the history of the world. We're told in Hebrews he tried to get it back with tears and could never get it back. I think of Abraham who in a moment of deep discouragement stepped out of the father's timing for his life and fathered a child named Ishmael that only brought pain and trouble to him and to the entire household and we are experiencing pain from it today because the Israeli-Arab conflict can be traced all the way back to that moment when Ishmael and Isaac warred against each other and Ishmael was removed from the house and kicked out into the wilderness. There has been a fight and a struggle and a hatred and an enmity ever since. What it come from? Abraham failed the hunger test. Esau failed the hunger test. Both of them decided to take matters into their own hands and meet their own needs outside of God's will, outside of God's timing, and they failed. Children of Israel, the same thing. God gave them manna. They ate manna in the morning, manna at night, manna in the noontime. They fried it, baked it, boiled it, did everything in the world they could do with it. But they got so sick of that manna. What was God trying to teach them? That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's what he was trying to teach them. And they failed the test because they started grumbling and griping and complaining and moaning and groaning. Until God said, you want food? You want meat? I'll give you meat. And he rained quail down on them. But with the quail came a curse and they all began to die. Why? They failed the hunger test. What's the hunger test? Trusting God until his provision comes. That's it. Jesus knew all these tragic stories because he was there. And so he countered Satan's attack with what Satan fears more than anything else in the world. Can you hold your Bible up again today? Hold your Bible up again. Let me tell you that in your hand is a mighty sword. This is not just any book. From now on, bring your, church, your, your Bible to church. Bring it. You need that sword. I'm not trying to make you feel bad, but I want everybody that is a member of the church, bring your Bible to church. Walk around in public with it. This is God's mighty word. And Jesus believed that it was inerrant. He believed that it was indestructible. He believed that it was a weapon that Satan feared more than anything else. You hold in your hand the way to defeat the devil, the way to guide your life. You hold in your hand the very written God-breathed word. Mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. The Word of God is quick and powerful. Sharper than a double-edged sword. So Jesus uttered the first words that He had uttered from the time He left the River Jordan till 40 days later now. He's being tempted. The first words out of His mouth that we know anything about in 40 days was, It is written. It is written. It is written. This shows me that Jesus was absolutely confident in the integrity, reliability, validity of this Word. He wasn't going, well, you know, I'm not sure it's all the Word of God. Or I kind of doubt this part and that part. I'm not sure about that Jonah stuff and a whale swallowing him and that Sodom and Gomorrah having fire fall on it. And I don't know about this creation of the original man and woman. No, he validated every one of those stories. 
because they are actual historical accounts. He swung the word like a sword. He slammed it like a hammer. He stood on it like a rock. He answered from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And Satan went, Stab! In this first temptation of Satan, Jesus refused to be shaken in his trust in the grace and the goodness of God. He passed the hunger test. Oh, am I hungry? But I'm not going to meet a right need a wrong way. When the money's not there, or loneliness stalks your soul, or friends walk out, or you're in a battle with sickness, or a marriage fails, or some hunger gnaws away and is demanding satisfaction in your life, we've got to trust God like Jesus trusted God and say life is more than satisfying this or that particular hunger. Life is feeding on the Word of God. And if the Word of God is all I have when I wake up in the morning, then the Word of God is enough. My God has not forsaken me. He hadn't walked out on me. He will provide for me in His good time. And you know what I love about this? As soon as he passed the hunger test, it says the devil walked away and angels came and ministered to him. Right then. Had God left him? No. Did he forsake him? Never. Did Jesus pass the hunger test? Yes. That means... The captain of our souls, the captain of our salvation, has left us an inheritance. And it's this. You and me can pass the hunger test. We can say, you know, Lord, I am hungry, that's for sure. I have this need, that need, that is for sure. But I'm not going to meet the right need the wrong way. I'll wait on you. And say to the devil, it is written. I'm not going to live by meeting that need. But I live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, period. He'll send his angels. He'll send his strength. Your provision will come just around the corner. Can we stand together today? If you're in a battle today with temptation, I want you to look at Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. He passed that hunger test. And in doing so, maintained his ability to redeem us. And today there's a redeemer in the house. There's a savior in this place who wants to redeem you. He can do it because he never sinned and died in your stead. He spilled his blood down that old rugged cross and it was pure blood it was saving blood and wherever you are with him right now maybe you're being tempted the enemy is knocking on your door I want to pray with you right now I'm not going to call you down but I want to pray for you in the audience and pray with you with our heads bowed if you can say Pastor Jeff this was for me today and I want to pass the hunger test like Jesus did. There was a knock on my door to meet a right need in a wrong way. And I want to take my stand today that I will not sin. Can you lift your hands? And I'm going to pray for you all over this place. Many, many people.
You're in a hunger test, friend. I've been there, and I'll certainly be there again. Some I have succeeded, some I have failed and fallen flat on my face, but I know my Redeemer lives. And I've learned to lean on Him. And we're going to learn together. Say with me, Lord, I give you this temptation to meet a right need the wrong way. I'm going to pass this hunger test, Lord. And I lean on your spirit and I pick up your word. And I say to the devil, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from God's mouth. And I receive that victory, Lord. In the name of Jesus. Now keep bowed just a moment. I want to pray for people who may be far away from the Lord. Do you know that today is the day of salvation? This is your hour. This is your moment. This is a perfect time for you to say, you know what? It's time for me to come home. I know he loves me. I know he's not against me. God wants to bless me. And I don't want to let anything any longer stand in my way of getting right with God. There may be just one person here today. That one person would be all worth it. Or you may have never in your life had Christ come into your heart and fill you with His Spirit and wash you from your sin. You can do it today. The cross is right there. And Jesus is here. And He loves you. And He really does want to bless you. And you can say, Pastor Jeff, I'm in one of those two categories. And I'll let you pray with me today. I want you to do something. Raise your hand right now, quickly. And just say, that's me. I need to come to Him. And I need to get right with Him. I see you over there. God bless you and you. Put them up high where I can see you. Back there, God bless you. The greatest decision you can ever make is to come to the one who died for you. He's going to change your life. I'm going to ask you if your hand is raised. I want you to do something. Would you slip out and come and stand in front of me right here? Say, why do I need to come down there? Because as soon as you take one step, it's a step of faith. And it's the, it's the kind of faith that reaches up and grabs hold of God. And He's going to meet you right here. One step of faith and your life begins to change. So I want you to come right now. Come quickly as we sing a, a, a brief worship song. Come now. This is your moment, your day, your hour. We're going to pray for you. In Jesus' name, you come. Let's My